And after that, Father, I just pray a blessing on the word that we speak it in love and in clarity as you provide and we consider it, Father, as an example of your awesome power as you control the world and everything that happens in it. So even as we pray for these needs, we recognize, Father, that there's a plan at work. So we look forward, Father, to the end of that plan, for we know it brings glory to those who are yours. And in the meantime, Father, we seek for understanding and for the courage to be obedient in what you give us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The final three chapters of the book of Daniel, chapters 10 through 12, are the final episode of Daniel's prophetic career. And we're going to study them in two parts. So tonight we're going to do first part. First part takes us through chapter 10 and sets up the scene for what's coming in the later two chapters. And in this chapter, in chapter 10, Daniel is going to get a vision of both near-term and far-term, long-term prophetic events concerning Israel and the age of the Gentiles. Part 1 continues from 10 into 11, and it's going to deal primarily with the near-term prophetic events. And then at a point in chapter 11, it will shift quite subtly into talking about the far-term prophetic events and that prophecy. That prophecy deals with the very end days of the age of the Gentiles. It looks ahead to the end of the fourth kingdom and to all of the tumultuous events that bring this age to conclusion and lead to Christ's second coming. And that part two continues from the midpoint of 11 all the way through 12. We're going to do part one tonight, part two next week. And as a teaser, at the end of part two, there's a fascinating connection to the book of Revelation that we get to connect for you. For now, let's start in chapter 10. And Daniel's encounter with the first of what will be several mysterious figures. Chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar. And the message was true and one of great conflict. But he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks was completed. On the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz, his body was also, also was like burl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. That's our first pause. And as Daniel typically does, he dates what he's going to write about against the reign of a king. And that king in this case is Cyrus, the third year of Cyrus's reign. Remember, Cyrus was the Persian king who released Israel to go rebuild its temple in Jerusalem. And chapter 9, we read last time, was set in the first year of this guy. So now that would mean chapter 10 follows two years later, in the third year of this guy, of Cyrus. This is the last vision Daniel receives, the last one recorded in his book, chronologically as well as in terms of chapter. We know that Daniel then would have to be approaching 90 years old at this point. He does not return to Jerusalem with the exiles, self-evidently. And so we assume he likely passes away while he's still here in Babylon, shortly after this vision when the work of his prophecy is complete. He says at this point in chapter 10, he says he received a message of great conflict. The Hebrew word for message is literally the word for speech. So Daniel receives a speech. He receives a spoken message. Chapters 10 and 12, 10 through 12, are his description of what he received and how he came by it. It's a message, he says, of conflict 
And that's because it describes a war between Gentiles and Jews, between God and Satan. And Daniel opens by telling us that he's been mourning for three weeks prior to this moment. His period of mourning was similar to a period of fasting, although technically it's not a fast. But what he does do in this time of mourning is he avoids anything of joy, anything that would represent joy. As he says here, he avoided tasty food, which which sounds like he must have just eaten airline food the whole time he was waiting. The Hebrew word for tasty, though, just means desirable or treasured or valuable. So he ate nothing that he liked, nothing that he desired. It was food. It was just plain, simple things, something to sustain himself, no joy in the eating. When the Jews mourned in this outward way through physical changes of this kind, what they were doing was trying to mirror the feeling of their soul in the disposition of their flesh. Their body would feel an anguish comparable to the way their soul was in anguish for some particular reason. So Daniel sought to bring his soul and body into agreement. He felt lost, and so he wanted to have his body feel it too. Then Daniel gives his reason for the mourning. And it's kind of hard here to see, especially, I think, as a Gentile. But Daniel says his three-week fast ended on the 24th day of the first month on the Jewish calendar. That date is significant for Jewish people. On the Jewish calendar, the feasts of Passover and unleavened bread take place from the 14th to the 21st of this month. Daniel seems then to have been mourning for about 10 days prior to Passover, and he continued until three days after that feast period had ended. And since Daniel gives us such a precise date for his mourning period here, that's not something he's done at any other point in his book, it would seem to suggest that he is highlighting these days because it's connected to his reason for the mourning. That is, the Passover itself is his cause for mourning. Remember what Passover remembers, what it memorializes? It memorializes Israel's freedom from slavery in a foreign land. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread remembers the quick exodus of Israel out of Egypt. So for Israel, this holiday serves as their Independence Day. For Israel, it represented victory over oppression. It stood for freedom. Most of all, it stood for God defeating the so-called gods of Egypt in that case. So it's not hard to imagine that as the Feast of Passover was approaching, Daniel entering his 90th year and his 72nd year of exile has gone into a time of mourning because he knows Israel has spent a long time outside its land and it still has many generations yet to go before it's going to see the fulfillment of all the promises of the kingdom. Remember, this guy's bearing the weight, the burden of all of that prophecy that he's been given. He knows what's coming. So he knows Israel's final exodus-like victory, their final freedom victory, is going to be a long way off. And in the meantime, they got literally thousands of years ahead of them of Gentile oppression. I presume he's mourning the weight of all of that judgment. Perhaps he's hoping that by his mourning he could convince God to move away from that plan or to move it more quickly or to do something. Instead, what we see happen in this chapter is that the Lord takes favor on Daniel and visits him in an entirely new way. And what follows in this scene is connected both to previous chapters of Daniel, which we'll see, as well as to things coming in the book of Revelation. So this three-chapter segment of Daniel is especially important for showing how it's connected to what is coming in Revelation. Beginning in verse 5, with the introduction of a new character. Daniel is standing by the bank of the Tigris River, which, by the way, runs through Babylon. And he looks up. And he sees a figure which Daniel calls a certain man. Now, Daniel's description of this man reminds us of the one Daniel saw briefly in chapter 8. 
Remember this guy in chapter 8 who was said to be between the banks of a river that is suspended over water? Chapter 8, verse 15, it says, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Uli. And he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So in that earlier moment, chapter 8, the man standing between or hovering between the banks tells an angel, Gabriel, to give Daniel an explanation of visions that Daniel had already received. And as we're going to learn in chapter 12 of Daniel, the man suspended above the water in chapter 8 is the same man you see here because, as you're going to learn in chapter 12, this man in linen is also suspended above the water of the Tigris River. He just doesn't say that here. He tells you that in chapter 12. So that would naturally lead us to conclude that this man is the same one Daniel saw in chapter 8. I mean, how many guys do you run into who hover above rivers? This time, though, unlike in chapter 8, Daniel gives us a description of what this man looks like here. And by Daniel's description, the man seems to be just glowing almost white hot. First, his clothing is white linen, which is interesting because white linen is what a priest would wear. And white implies purity, while a priestly garment implies an intercessor. His belt, pure gold, and that signifies great importance, great majesty, and of course anything made of pure gold is just going to reflect light like crazy. Daniel said he knew the gold's origin, a place called Uphaz, which is an unknown place, so we're not sure the significance of that. Furthermore, his body, the body of the person, is like beryl. Beryl or beryl is a transparent yellow stone, and it glows like light when light hits it. And his face of the person is an intense white light also, like lightning. His eyes are lit up like flaming torches. Finally, his arms and legs are like polished bronze, which if you polish bronze, it's like a mirror. It reflects light brilliantly. So the overall effect is intense light, glowing reflections from every place. And then his voice sounds like a tumult, And that word just means many different sounds combined together all at once. So his voice is this intense, powerful sound. And he's just a glowing, white, hot person. There is another place in the Bible where you see a very similar description, you may remember. Revelation chapter 1. John sees this. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, which had been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. That's John's, Apostle John's description of a man that we come to know from the reading of Revelation 1 is Jesus, post-crucifixion Jesus appearing to John on the island of Patmos, and you can see immediately the similarities, right? In fact, if you compare the two, John's description of Jesus varies from Daniel's only in terms of the comparisons he makes. For John, it's a robe. For Daniel, it's white linen. For John, it's a sash of gold. For Daniel, it's a belt of gold. For John, it's white like wool. Daniel says, no, like lightning. John says, a voice of many waters. Daniel says, no, it's a tumult. These are trivial differences. They're just men grasping for some point of comparison, but they're describing exactly the same thing in both cases. They're both describing the same person, Christ. 
So based on the description we have in John's uh, writing, we make a fair conclusion that Daniel is seeing a pre-incarnate Christ here in chapter 10, though interestingly appearing in exactly the same form as he does post-crucifixion, post-resurrection. By the way, an appearance of Christ to Daniel, or in the book of Daniel, is not unprecedented because we saw the angel of the Lord back in an earlier chapter appearing to Daniel's friends in the furnace. This is not the first time Jesus has appeared in the book, and we have another appearance of similar kind. So it all lines up. This is the first of several important connections between the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation in these chapters. In fact, Daniel's book, as I think I mentioned at one point, is often called the Revelation of the Old Testament. The two books are connected in a lot of ways, and not simply because they address end times events similarly, but they're linked in surprising ways, and in one particular way, which we're going to see at the end of chapter 12. But it starts here with this common appearance, common description of Christ. And like John... Daniel is terrified by the appearance of Jesus appearing before him. Verse 7. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. Well, the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision. Yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this this word to me, I stood up trembling. Daniel was apparently accompanied by others in the moment, though they do not see what Daniel saw. And that reminds us of another man's experience, right? Paul, or Saul at the time, on the road to Damascus. Paul saw and heard Jesus, though his companions did not see and hear quite the same thing. They did not realize who was there or what was happening. But in both cases, the companions of Daniel and Paul were terrified by something and they were removed from the situation, either physically or otherwise. In the case of Paul, they're just incapacitated. For Daniel, the effect of this vision is his own dread and incapacitation. He physically becomes like a dead man. You notice this? And this is the uniform experience of sinful human beings when they are brought into the presence of God's holiness. It is more than a mental response. This is a physical response. Literally, the flesh reacts instinctively to God. And further proof of that is that his friends saw nothing, knew nothing, and yet it says they ran away and hid themselves. What are you hiding from if you don't see or hear anything? That's what happened to Adam and woman in the garden after they fell, right? They instinctively reacted to God's arrival in the garden by hiding themselves from his presence, even before they would have had any rational understanding of why they needed to. The reason humanity responds this way to God is because our sin puts us in mortal jeopardy before a holy and just God who must bring penalty against sin. And every man, every woman will have that instinctive reaction to God. Even someone like Daniel, who is objectively a pretty good guy. Nevertheless, he has sin. He can't stand in the presence of a holy God. So at this point, Daniel goes, it says, face down to the ground in a coma-like state. And yet, he's got to be used by God. That's the whole reason he's getting a visitation. So he has to be revived if he's going to receive the revelation of the Lord. So the Lord sends an angel to revive Daniel and to continue the conversation. In verse 10, a hand touches Daniel and brought Daniel onto his hands and knees. So you imagine this guy still down, hands and knees, but trembling on the ground, barely able to hold himself in that position, no longer incapacitated. Here you see the essential difference between angelic beings and God. And with it, you see the purpose 
God had at least one purpose in creating angels to begin with. And that difference is this. Angels are God's servants and they create a bridge for that gap between fallen man and God. Not in a salvitic sense. I'm talking only in terms of encounters. So as Hebrews explains, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 13, But to which of the angels has God ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So angels are ministering spirits. They provide service to God on our behalf. They are messengers sent by God to minister to the saints. They can interact with men in ways that God personally cannot because of our fallen nature. Angels do also elicit strong responses in men, principally one of fear, but fear is the natural response to something that is supernatural, much like being scared by a loud noise or by large animals, etc. It's not a supernatural response. It's just a natural response. If an angel appears before you and you don't freak out, then something's wrong with you. But angels are not our judge, and therefore we do not experience a feeling of dread or jeopardy in their presence. Men can work with angels, so to speak, without falling down, without entering a coma, which is why they are God's messengers. So the Lord, hovering over the water, hands off the conversation to his angel, probably Gabriel again. How do we know that an angel has joined the scene in verse 10? Well, first, this pattern matches exactly the last time Daniel encountered the man over the water in chapter 8. Let me take you back there. In chapter 8, verse 16, he says, I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Uli, and he called out and said... Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he, Gabriel, came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened. I fell on my face, naturally response to angels. But he, Gabriel, said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and he made me to stand upright. It's exactly the same pattern we see happening here. Second reason that I believe you see an angel here, if you fast forward to chapter 12... We read this in chapter 12, 5. Remember, this is the same scene in chapter 12. 12, 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? So in chapter 12, the same moment as we have in chapter 10 and 11, Daniel then reveals that there's been two other characters hanging around on the banks of this river, even as he hasn't mentioned them yet in chapter 10. And in addition, Jesus, the man in linen over the water, there with two men on either side of the bank, that means that one of these men must be standing on the same bank as Daniel, because he's on the bank also. So one of the extra two is near him, or on the same side at least. Once again, we would assume these other two are angels, because of what we're going to see happen both in this chapter and in chapter 12. So you have two angels standing on either bank with Christ hovering over the water. Third reason this is an angel, look ahead to the next section of chapter 10, just down the page. Notice that in verse 16, Daniel describes that the one speaking to him, the one that picks up the narrative in verse 10, Daniel says he is one resembling a human being. Do you see that? This has got to be a different one than the person he saw earlier in chapter 10, because the guy you see earlier in chapter 10 with flaming eyes and the like, that doesn't look anything like a human being. He describes him as being like a man, but then he goes on to describe he's not at all like a man. This time he describes this other one as being like a human being. That would indicate a second character. And then finally, we can determine the identity of these two additional characters by looking at chapter 10 and 12 again. In chapter 10, verse 13, 
The one speaking to Daniel mentions an angel, Michael, who assists him in a battle against an adversary. Then later in chapter 12, verse 1, this same character still speaking speaks of Michael again in the third person. So that would appear that this angel, whoever's speaking, is not Michael, leaving you with only one other character in the book of Daniel to consider, which would be Gabriel, the same one that spoke to Daniel in chapter 9. And that would mean that the other character on the far side of the bank is likely Michael, who doesn't appear to be much for speaking. So let's continue ahead with that conclusion. I'm going to continue to call the speaker then Gabriel. So it says, Gabriel has touched Daniel, and Daniel is now on his hands and knees. From this point in verse 11, Gabriel tells Daniel that he, Daniel, is a man of high esteem, which is exactly the same word Gabriel used in chapter 9. Daniel is esteemed, meaning he is a man who has received great grace from God in this role that he's been given, and by his faithfulness and devotion to obeying God, then he has commended himself as a prophet. And then the angel directs Daniel, why don't you get all the way up? Presumably because he wants him to see some things and hear some things. So Daniel moves to his feet, though he's still trembling, which of course will then prompt the customary angelic greeting. Verse 12. Then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard and I've come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. So Gabriel tells Daniel, look, you don't need to fear me, because I'm an answer to your prayer. The angel came in response, it says, to Daniel's words. What he's referring to is the prayer Daniel presumably has been praying for the last 21 days, for his three-week mourning period. This is the second time Gabriel has been dispatched in response to Daniel's prayer. But in chapter 9, if you remember, Gabriel shows up before the prayer is even over and says, at the beginning of your supplications, I was dispatched to you. And here I am now at the conclusion. But this time it doesn't come quite so quickly. By the way, it's a pretty powerful testimony of Daniel that his prayer life necessitates visitations by archangels every time he asks for something, right? In this case, it says Daniel fasted for three weeks, and now you see Gabriel saying that he had to go that full three-week period before he showed up to answer the prayer because he was busy. He was occupied in an effort to withstand an enemy of some kind. So based on what Gabriel tells Daniel, we can surmise Daniel must have been praying for an understanding concerning troubling visions that he had received in either the earlier chapters or maybe somewhere outside of the chapters we have. They had been terrifying. They looked into Israel's future. They were a burden for him. He sought divine intervention to make sense of it and to help relieve the burden. And so he enters a period of mourning and fasting around the Passover time, seeking the Lord to come and assist him through this period of concern. It would seem that had it been possible, the angelic realm would have responded earlier, but they were a little busy. And Gabriel's words then confirm a couple of things for us, that first, angels are bound by space and time just as every created being is. A day for an angel appears to be the same as a day for us. And they must travel to and fro. They can't be in all places at the same time. Secondly, we find that the power of the angelic realm operates within boundaries set by the Lord. Because in this case, obviously the Lord didn't permit Gabriel to prevail, nor did he permit Michael to relieve Gabriel until the timing was right. So it appears the Lord wanted this delay. For Daniel, that's got to be an encouragement to anyone who prays, right? To remember the Lord may have good cause for us to wait for a while. He even causes angels to wait when it's necessary so that we don't have help too quickly. He answers our prayers on his own timetable and he does it according to a, a plan that he has to accomplish greater good, whatever that may be.
So why was Gabriel busy for those three weeks? That's really the thing we all want to know, right? What was he doing? He says that the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding him. A prince in the Bible is a term for a spiritual actor, usually an angelic being. And we see that actually in the same verse because Michael is also called one of the chief princes. And we know he's an archangel. And by the way, we know Gabriel is another archangel, so he too would be a chief prince. In chapter 9, you remember the Antichrist was called a prince. The people of the prince who is to come. Because as he acts from mid-trib onward, he's indwelled by Satan. And in that sense, he is controlled by a fallen angelic being. And he's called the prince for that reason. So then, who is the prince of the kingdom of Persia? Well, we know he's an angelic being, or so we think. He opposes Gabriel, so that must mean he's an adversary of God's heavenly host. He can't be a friendly angel, that means he has to be a demon. And he has a special responsibility for Persia. And that statement would seem to suggest that demons have responsibilities assigned to them by Satan for working over various kingdoms or regions of the earth. And in this case, perhaps this prince of Persia may be no less than Satan himself. Persia, by the way, includes the region of Babylon, which in the Bible has been Satan's backyard since Eden. But that actually seems unlikely here because of something we read in the letter of Jude. In Jude, verse 9, we read this. Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against Satan a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So in Jude we learn that Satan, at some point in the past, sought Moses' body after he died. Probably, we assume, to resurrect it by indwelling it, like he eventually does the Antichrist body, because he knew that in doing so he could greatly deceive Israel if they saw Moses come back to life. So God did not let the enemy have a way to get that body. Jude says that God used the archangel Michael to intervene in stopping Satan's plan, but Satan being a superior angelic being, he is a cherub. He is the covering cherub. Cherubs are the highest order of angels. Seraphim are the second highest order, and angels are the lowest order. So even the archangel Michael is the highest of the third order, whereas Satan is a cherub. He's at the highest of those three levels. As a result, we're told Michael, when he intervened, didn't dare rebuke Satan. But instead, he asked the Lord to rebuke Satan for him. So if Michael, an archangel, wouldn't even speak a word against Satan, and yet we read here that Gabriel held off this prince of Persia for 21 days, it would seem unlikely that the angel Gabriel could withstand Satan for three weeks if Michael can't even speak a a word against him in rebuke. Right. So the more likely conclusion is that this prince of Persia is just another powerful demon, perhaps Satan's right-hand agent, Number two guy in the demonic realm assigned to Persia since that's Satan's most precious territory on earth and that Gabriel and eventually Michael battled this demon to stop him in some evil plan for the region. That would also explain why the Middle East and Arab nations generally have historically been such dangerous places for Jews and Christians. Uh, Many missionaries will testify to the fact that it's especially spiritually dark place. There's lots of persecution there. Whenever they're in that part of the world, you can feel it. I think I felt it when I've been there. And the demonic control of that region is far more pronounced and pernicious there than in other areas of the globe. Not coincidentally, that region is the source of Islam, which is one of the most destructive religious systems in the world. And so it would seem as though this is a very powerful agent. Nonetheless, Satan's power is never equal to God's, and so even today the Lord moving in that part of the world to bring many to faith, even in the darkness, which means that when angels battle Satan, as you see described here, or his agents, 
That just means these battles are according to God's purpose, that he allows the battles, they serve some greater purpose. The end's always in his control. Don't read too much into the idea that there's a fight going on. But for some reason, there's a purpose in it, that God wants it to take place. I like to think of it this way. Think of the evil work that Satan's forces choose to do, like water rushing downhill. Both have great destructive power, Satan and his forces and water. They both have great destructive power. But if that power is channeled and directed, it can be put to work. God uses his angels to channel and direct Satan's evil desires to produce good outcomes for God's people. Finally, what was the nature of the conflict? What do we assume they were fighting about? Well, based on the clue inside the text itself, plus taking a little history, we can get a guess at the answer. At the end of verse 13, Gabriel says that he had been left with the kings of Persia. Now, kings refer to human rulers over the region of Persia. These men seem to be the focus of that angelic conflict. So the demons would seem to be intent on using those men on earth to further some evil purpose, while Gabriel and Michael were dispatched to resist the demons in that effort and prevent their success. And we know all of this is taking place historically shortly after the exiles had been sent back to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. In Ezra, we read of how powerful rulers of the surrounding nations were opposing Israel's work in their attempt to rebuild. Ezra 4.4 Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So you see the people resisting. Perhaps those are the ones that were under the influence of the demons at some point. But, you know, it's just as likely that the battle that's taking place here is over something that we never experienced on earth, that no one ever had to see. In other words, Gabriel and Michael prevented it from ever manifesting. The enemy is often seeking to do evil that never materializes on earth. And the angelic realm appears to be battling to keep us out of harm. So if you've ever wondered why Satan doesn't wreak even more havoc on earth given his power, it might be because the angelic realm is stopping him. You have them to thank for it, as God obviously empowers them. As Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. All right, now the angel gets down to business. Verse 14. Now I've come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision pertains to the days yet future. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me and I have retained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. Then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. He said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Gabriel is prepared to give Daniel an answer concerning all these visions. But just the mention of them again just sucks all the life out of Daniel again. And he just goes right back down onto the ground, becomes speechless. Remember, these visions we're talking about now are things that God has imprinted on Daniel's brain. And they are like coming attractions of events that will transpire in years to come on the earth concerning Israel. Things of the age of the Gentiles. Things of Israel being oppressed by Gentiles. And they include truly horrible things that God is going to permit because of the weight of Israel's offenses under the Old Covenant. 
And it's a sign to us of just how terrible some of these coming things are that even just a fleeting vision of them or a reminder of them is enough to cause Daniel to faint and not have enough strength to speak. Notice he's literally speechless. We're not saying he's without any words. He doesn't know what to say. He can't talk. And so the angel, it says, touches his lips in verse 16 to strengthen his mouth. It's like whatever he touches makes his body strong again. With that renewed strength, Daniel continues to speak again, but from what we can tell, he's still on the prone on the ground. So he's just talking with his face on the ground. Then he asks the angel, how can I talk with you? And he refers to the angel here as Lord, and that might catch your attention, but the term Lord is simply a generic title of respect. You really can't judge it on its own. You have to look at the context. It's used quite often for anyone who is a superior. It's even said of Abraham that Sarah called him Lord. Secondly, Daniel is asking, how could he be expected to continue in this conversation since he has no stamina to do so, no strength in him, can't even catch his breath. He's literally exhausted. So later we're going to learn that Daniel is having visions of calamities that include images of tribulation, of the last three years of tribulation, three and a half years. So if just a vision of tribulation brings men to their knees and speechless, what will the real thing be like? For that matter, what is hell going to be like? So in response to Daniel's question, Gabriel touches Daniel again now, but now to give his whole body strength. Here again, another function of angels. Angels bring strength to men, or women, in the midst of difficult spiritual battles. And this is not the only example. You see the same thing happen to Elijah. In 1 Kings 19, an angel shows up, bakes him bread, gives him strength, and tells him, continue on your journey. Or how about Jesus? Jesus, after 40 days of fasting, it says that he is ministered to by angels to give him strength. Gabriel tells Daniel to be strong and courageous because there's prophetic work to do. And so Daniel, being supernaturally revived, says, let's go. Tell me what I need to hear. Before we begin the revelation, the the angel asks Daniel once more at the end of 10 if he understands why Gabriel came to him right now. And I love what he does here. It's very interesting. Verse 20, he says, do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. Now, at first, it seems like he's mixing a couple things here, right? Like he's jumping around between topics, but he's not. Earlier, Gabriel said he was fighting a demon, a prince of Persia, for three weeks. And he broke away. Why? For Daniel's sake, to answer a prayer, to give understanding. And what let him leave? Michael's help, right? He could only afford, though, to be here with Daniel for a short time because he says, I've got to get back to the fight, and there's another guy coming, in fact. I've got to fight him, too. I don't have a large army. The only guy I've got standing with me is Michael. So, in other words, do you understand how important this is that I've come to you? Do you understand how important you are and how important this message is? This is a crucial time. This is important stuff. You need to understand this. It's so important. In fact, you can see what I went through to get to you. So he says in verse 21, I'm here to tell you what you must inscribe in Scripture. That is, I'm here to tell you what you're going to write, which is going to become truth, which is going to become Scripture for everyone else. And what Daniel now gets is chapters 11 and 12. So Daniel's chapter 10 is the backdrop to help you understand how he gets what he then writes in chapters 11 and 12. So everything in Daniel's vision that he's going to get in 11 and 12 will take place long after Daniel passes away. Some of these details are going to be fulfilled within a few hundred years of Daniel's life, while others have yet to be fulfilled. So they're going to break naturally into this near-term, far-term grouping. Near-term meaning within a few hundred years, far-term meaning thousands of years. Verse 
1 of chapter 11. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And a mighty king will arise and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others beside them. What's about to take place in this chapter, at least the part we're going to cover tonight, is just a long list of details concerning the history of two kingdoms that came out of the Persian Empire and the Greek Empire. And the movements and the names become hard to follow. But later, if you really want to dive through it and make sure you don't miss any of the details, just download the notes. You'll have it all written there. That's an easier way, I think. I'll do my best to make it sensible, but I'm just giving you that warning that it might not be. (laughs) So the chapter opens with a verse that is actually the final verse of chapter 10. Chapter 11, verse 1, when it says, In the first year of Darius the Mede, I rose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. That's actually part of chapter 10. Daniel typically starts new sections when he does his writing with the reign of a king, right? So the men who constructed our canon placed this verse at the start of chapter 11 just to keep it with the pattern. But it's misleading because you're supposed to read verse 1 in Gabriel's voice, not in Daniel's voice. So Gabriel is saying, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, Gabriel, arose to be an encouragement and a protection for Darius the Mede. This is in keeping with what we just saw. There are angels who work closely with certain realms or certain kingdoms or certain geography. That was Gabriel's assignment. So the angel is telling Daniel that he has been working with the first king of Persia from the start of his reign to support the people of Israel. And as a result of his work, the king of Persia issued that decree to release Israel and allow them to go back. And now it's two years later, and here's Gabriel still at work for the needs of Israel. That's his point. But that work has a timeline, and many things have got to come to pass before this timeline is complete. Angels don't die. They are immortal. So angels have a plenty of time to work a long plan that we don't have time on this earth anyway to see come to pass. And here's his explanation, again, with near-term and far-term events. Both events, both the near-term events and the far-term events, take place during the age of the Gentiles, and both are related to Jesus. The near-term events are related to Jesus' first coming, while the far-term events will be related to his second coming. And in that sense, these two sets of events are themselves related. The earlier set serve as a picture of the later set. So both are preceding events to the first and second comings of Christ, and they're more than just both before, they're also comparable in style. One is a picture of what will happen in the later. And of course, pictures of Scripture always move from lesser to greater. So the events of this near-term prophecy is a lesser to the events of the far-term prophecy that precede Christ's second coming. We'll do the first part tonight. We're not going to do the second part until next week. Gabriel moves to the first part. First he tells Daniel, there will be four more kings total in Persia's history. And history confirms this prophecy. The four kings are Cambius, Pseudo-Smerdus, Darius I, that's a different Darius, and Xerxes I. Gabriel says that the fourth of those kings will have the greatest wealth and power of all of them. And again, history agrees with that. Xerxes became so powerful that he decided he could conquer a growing adversary in the West, Greece. And according to the Greek historian Herodotus, 
Xerxes assembled an army of a million men and sent them on ships, imagine how many ships that is, to attack Greece. They conquered virtually all Greece, including burning Athens to the ground. But in the end, Xerxes was defeated in a very famous naval battle and was forced to retreat. But his incursion laid the groundwork for the rise of Alexander the Great. And in verse 3, Gabriel moves to that kingdom, to the third kingdom of Greece, and begins speaking of Alexander the Great. You notice in the text, the mighty king who does as he pleases. And he goes on to say, as soon as he ascends, his kingdom is broken into pieces. Again, that's an undeniable reference to Alexander the Great. Remember, his premature death resulted in his kingdom being divided into four parts. And it says here, according to the compass, sure enough, they were divided north, south, east, and west. Also, we know Alexander the Great had no descendants, just as it says here. So his kingdom was given to others. This is a remarkably accurate depiction of things that had centuries yet to happen. And that's just backdrop. That just gives us context now for what comes next. Verse 5. Then the king of the south will grow strong along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His dominion will be a great dominion indeed. After some years they will form an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. But she will not retain her position of power nor will he remain with his power. But she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her as well as he who supported her in those times. But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place and he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north and he will deal with them and display great strength. Also, their gods and their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold he will take into captivity to Egypt. And he, on his part, will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but he will return to his own land. You almost need a map as you're going to, well, you do need a map, and uh, as you're going to walk through this. So we can download it later, but I'll talk about it here more in a minute. This section I just started runs all the way to verse 20. And in it are details of a conflict that take place over a long period of time between the Ptolemy and the Seleucid kingdoms that came out of the Alexander the Great empires. The Seleucid kingdom occupies present-day Syria into northern Judea, and the Ptolemaic empire occupied Egypt and extended into southern Judea, which means that the border separating these two powers ran right through the middle of Israel. So naturally, as these two empires fight back and forth for control, the front lines were always Israel. Daniel calls the Ptolemaic kingdom the kingdom of the south, and he calls the Seleucid kingdom the kingdom of the north. They are north and south relative to an observer who would be standing in Jerusalem. That shows you the perspective of the author here. It's coming from the perspective of a Jew. That is a clear fulfillment of Jesus' words when he calls the age of the Gentiles a time of trampling of Jerusalem by Gentiles. What sets up here in this conflict is a perfect set of circumstances for the trampling of Jerusalem and Israel on a continual basis. And so what follows in the history of these two powers, we will address in summary because it's really just backdrop for something even more important that's coming. And because we have a lot of content here, I'm going to move through it very quickly. What you're going to be able to see then is the way that history is mapped to what's in the text. Okay? So I'm just going to read out history and I'm going to tell you what verses it maps to. First, verse 5, Ptolemy first Soter is a king of the south who was a general under Alexander, and after Alexander died, he was assigned responsibility for the Ptolemaic kingdom, and he decided he would just make himself king, or as he called himself, Pharaoh, over Egypt. He had been assigned the territory as a governor, but he thought, why do I need to answer to anyone else? 
And he called himself Pharaoh to gain the acceptance of the population of Egypt for his rule. Meanwhile, another ex-Alexandrian general, Seleucus I Nicator, or Nicator, the king of the north, rose to power over Babylon, and Seleucus Nicator was forced to defend Babylon at one point against a third general from Alexander's army, a man who is appropriately named Antagonus. And Antagonus threatened to take over Babylon, so Seleucus Nicator sought assistance from Ptolemy I Soter. So he starts getting threatened by another general who wants what he has. So he calls down here to Ptolemy I Soter and says, Can you help me? Defend myself. Because he asked Ptolemy I Soter for help, Seleucus I Nicator became his prince, which is what Gabriel says in verse 5. So effectively, Ptolemy I Soter now has power over Babylon as well. He's turned the Seleucid king into basically a vassal. That's what we read up through verse 5. Then Gabriel says, some years pass, notice that, so that now some new events take place. What he means is, eventually these two guys die, as all do, and their thrones are inherited by their sons, and then their sons die, and eventually now they're in the hands of their grandsons. So now you have Ptolemy II, the grandson, ruling in the south, and you have Antiochus II ruling in the north. These two are not friendly like their forefathers. They are bitter enemies, again. And in 250 B.C., they get the idea to bury the hatchet through marriage. So Ptolemy II's daughter was going to marry Antiochus II in the north, who had divorced his wife Laodicea in order to take Ptolemy's daughter as a new wife. Then when Ptolemy II died, when the guy down here died, the guy who took his daughter up here, Antiochus, decided, eh, I'd rather have my first wife back. Once Laodicea was back in favor in the court, she had the new wife, whose name was Berenice, killed, along with the infant son that she had born from Antiochus II. And then, for good measure, she poisoned her husband as well. (laughs) Hell hath no fury, right? And she tried for a short time to rule in place of Antiochus II. Eventually, her son, Seleucus II, succeeded his father and took control of the north. Now, those are the events that are described in verse 6. Everything I just said is what's in verse 6. Later, Berenice's brother, Ptolemy III, came to power in the south. Now, remember, Berenice, the one that was killed, she used to be the daughter of Ptolemy II. Well, her brother becomes the king when dad dies. So Ptolemy III now is king. Meanwhile, she's been killed up here. After her brother comes to power, he's determined to avenge her death in the north. So he launches an attack against Seleucus II. The battle took place in Syria, right at Antioch, named for Antiochus. He succeeded in killing Laodicea, the city is named for her, by the way. And he gained control of much of the northern kingdom's territory. So Ptolemy III ended up invading and taking over a good patch of the Seleucid Empire. Those are the events that are described in verse 7. After his conquest of the north, Ptolemy III returned to Egypt, bringing spoil back with him. Among the things he brought back were religious artifacts from Syria. Those are the things mentioned in verse 8. Apparently, Seleucus II later counterattacks by trying to invade Egypt and retaliate against the Ptolemaic Empire, but his attack is unsuccessful. That campaign is not recorded anywhere in history except in the Bible, and we only know of it from verse 9. Verse 10, his sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through. 
that he may again wage war up to this very fortress. The king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up and he will cause tens of thousands to fail, yet he will not prevail. For the king of the north will again raise a greater multitude than the former, and after an interval of some years he will press on with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. All right, so let's keep going with history. Eventually, Seleucus II, the guy up here in the north, he dies, and he is succeeded by his son Seleucus III, who dies quickly, and is succeeded by his brother, Antiochus III, who will become known as Antiochus the Great. These sons of Seleucus II, that is, Seleucus III and eventually Antiochus III, those two sons, sought to restore the glory of Syria that had been lost to the Ptolemaic kings earlier because of that invasion that I described a minute ago, right? So they attack Egypt during each of their reigns. Seleucus III does in his short reign. He attacks. After he dies, his brother picks up the baton, Antiochus III, and continues the attacks. Eventually, the Seleucids do succeed in driving the Ptolemaic Egyptians all the way back to the Sinai, where they had captured a lot of what was the Seleucid Empire. Because of Antiochus III, he's able to drive them back to basically what we think of as Egypt's border today. That's all described in verse 10. As a result, Ptolemy IV, Philippator, attacks Antiochus III at the new border in southern Israel. So the next guy on the throne here, Ptolemy IV, he counterattacks and hits Antiochus III right at this border with Palestine. The attack is devastating. In fact, it's so devastating it destroys Antiochus III's army. But Antiochus regroups, he, he escapes, he regroups, stopping the advance. And in the end, Ptolemy IV, Philippator, recaptures only Palestine. So the border now moves from Sinai back up here to about present-day Lebanon. That is described in verses 11 and 12. Antiochus will direct his military efforts now in a new direction for a time. He rebuilds his army by fighting lesser adversaries in other directions. He sort of ignores the Ptolemaic adversaries for a while. Eventually, though, he comes back to fighting the Ptolemaic kingdom, and he succeeds in retaking Palestine in 203 B.C., so now we have fighting where? And here again. Now the border moves back down to there. That campaign is described in verse 13. Now, to this point, you have probably noticed the back-and-forth battle being centered right on Israel, right? The Jewish people just keep getting tossed to and fro as these two big boys on either side of them keep fighting, right? That's all intentional. This is how God is prosecuting the age of the Gentiles against Israel. And in this case, as Antiochus III enters the land again and moves the border back down again, the people of Israel, it says, side with him. They oppose the Egyptians of the Ptolemaic kingdom, and they help Antiochus repel them. That's the uprising you read about in verse 14 of the many of your people, the uprising of your people. But it doesn't work. They hope to gain Antiochus III's favor for having sided with him, but they don't get anything out of it. And verse 15, the last section for tonight, then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege ramp, and capture a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land, with destruction in his hand. He will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of a woman to ruin it. But she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. 
Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. But a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Then in his place, one will arise, will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days, he will be shattered, though not in anger, nor in battle. Before we look at these and finish, just notice, in hindsight, you can find the pattern fitting history perfectly. But in foresight, it's too speculative. It's too generic. There's not enough detail in terms of people and names and places that you could know for a fact before it happens what was going to happen. It was not detail that could influence the way the actors chose to act when their day came because they couldn't see themselves in the text. But only in retrospect can you see it and thereby know that it's true. It sets up the authenticity and the authority of what will follow it as well. Everything that's still to come must be considered to be just as accurate a prediction as these are. Let's just finish out. Taking you back to where we left off, Antiochus III has come in and pushed the border back down to Egypt. The Ptolemaic kingdom is is now having to stay outside his reach here. And then, it says in verse 15, he besieges the coastal city of Sidon in northern Palestine. That's right up here. And when he defeats that city, he captures a key general, a guy named General Scopus, and all his elite troops, the Ptolemaic troops that were held in the city. That's what's being recorded in verse 15. This was the final stronghold of the Egyptians in Palestine. So as it fell, it meant that the Seleucids had regained complete control over Palestine. And now Antiochus III had the beautiful land of Israel, as the Bible refers to it, all to himself. Those are the events of verse 16. Meanwhile, a threat from a new enemy is rising in the West, Rome. By this point in history, 200 BC or so, Rome was gaining power and threatening to take over the world. So Antiochus initiates peace with Egypt. He offers his daughter Cleopatra as a wife to Ptolemy V. His goal is to form an alliance with the Ptolemaic kingdom in defense against Rome. He had hoped, though, that his daughter, Cleopatra, would secretly remain loyal to the Seleucid Empire in the north. Instead, she became loyal to her new Egyptian husband, and that's what's recorded in verse 17. Meanwhile, Antiochus strikes at Rome in Asia Minor, hoping to just forestall their advance, and a Roman commander succeeded in defending the coast from Antiochus III, and that commander is the one that's mentioned in verse 18. Antiochus III returns to his home after that. He dies soon thereafter, having foreseen the rise of Rome and eventually the loss of his own kingdom. Those events are given in verse 19. And then Antiochus' son, Seleucus IV, succeeds his father, and by that point he has to submit to Roman authority. Rome has already reached the point now of bringing their authority into the land. And Rome required that the Seleucid Empire pay taxes back to Rome. And so Seleucus IV taxes the people, including the people of Palestine, the Jews. And he smartly, I guess, or not so smartly, he assigns a Jewish man by the name of Heliodorus to collect tax in Judea. So he's a Jew sent to be a tax collector in Judea. The Romans did something very similar in Jesus' day, right? And Heliodorus goes throughout the jewel of the kingdom, throughout Israel, commanding that taxes be paid. Obviously, he makes no friends when he does this. And eventually, Heliodorus decides he has to act against the king or else risk getting killed by his own people as he tries to collect these onerous taxes. So during a return visit to Syria, 
Heliodorus poisons Seleucus IV and kills him. And that's the situation described in verse 20. But, as it turns out, that decision by Heliodorus sets up the near-term prophecy because the murder of the king by a Jew sets the stage for intense Jewish persecution. And that persecution leads us into the next part of this chapter, which is the main thrust of his near-term prophecy. And in fact, all the history we've covered up to this point is merely backdrop for what's about to happen. And from verses 21 through 35, a particularly despicable man will take center stage. His exploits against Israel become legendary. And he himself becomes a picture of another infamous historical figure in the far-term prophecy. We're going to cover this guy and the one he pictures next week, as well as concluding the chapter and doing chapter 12 next week. Unfortunately, this week is set up for next week, mostly, but that just makes next week extra special. Father, thank you, Lord, again for this season, for remembering your son's birth and arrival, and for the chance, Father, to celebrate it with friends. Thank you, Father, as well, as we look back through Daniel at uh, the miracle of your work in, in history, to bring Christ to us once and to bring him back again. And, Father, we look forward to that day just as your prophets look forward to the first one. And thank you, Father, for one more week in this study. Let us finish on schedule as we hope to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.